why Latinos move toward Trump, and why most are still Democrats. This week on the Science of Politics. For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. Trump lost vote share in 2020 compared to 2016, but he shrunk Democrats' advantage with Latino voters, gaining ground in South Florida and South Texas. Why do Latino voters usually vote for Democrats by large margins, and why did they swing toward Trump now? This week, I talked to Gabriel Sanchez of the University of New Mexico about his work on Latino voters, including co-editing Latinos in the 2016 election and Latinos in the 2012 election. He finds that Latino voters were highly engaged this year, but less focused on immigration, meaning traditional divisions on the economy were more salient. But Latinos strongly supported Democrats in the last two elections, so Republicans had room to gain. I also talked to Giovanni Castro of Penn State University about his new paper, The Influence of Country of Origin in the Process of Party Identification Acquisition. He finds that Latino national origin groups that left countries governed by right-wing leaders often identify with Democrats, whereas those fleeing countries governed by the left are more likely to be Republicans. That might explain why associating Democrats with socialism mattered this year. Sanchez says that the 2016 election saw Latino racialization, but that declined in 2020. So I've been, fortunately, an author of, of two edited volumes that track Latino voting patterns in both the 2012 and 2016 elections. And probably the biggest take-home message was how central immigration politics and policy was to Latino voters across both election cycles, uh, being either the number one or number two most salient issue for most Latino voters. And I think that kind of set the context, if you will, uh, for how Latinos approach the election, particularly in, in 2016, which is really the year in which most of us, myself included as, as experts in Latino politics, mentioned that uh, candidate Trump's campaign racialized Latinos more so than any other candidate in presidential election history, really starting his campaign, kind of demonizing Mexican immigrants in particular, and following that really hardline immigration approach through the election cycle, which was a big mobilizer for Latinos, not only in terms of higher turnout than a lot of people projected, but also the lowest support for any candidate on record, at least for, for our data, Latino decisions. Candidate Trump only got 18% of the Latino vote in 2016, which was, again, a, a record low for any candidate of either party um, among Latinos. So that was kind of the backdrop, if you will, if we think about those two election cycles. And then in, into 2020, obviously what was much different about this election than probably any other in American history was the health pandemic really being the backdrop for all aspects of the election for Latinos, just like everybody else. And I think that led a movement away from immigration policy and politics being like the core issue or the wedge issue, if you will, among Latinos. And I think that really changed how a lot of Latino voters looked at the race because you just didn't have that natural mobilizer of President Trump and his hardline messaging and racialized messaging about immigration playing his dominant role in 2020 as it did in the last two election cycles. Trump did not do well with Latinos, but he did much better this time. And the other thing that obviously a lot of folks have been talking about in the media is the increased support the Latino voters showed President Trump. You know, if we say in 2016, he only got 18% of the Latino vote, clearly, whether you look at our data or the exit poll data, um, clearly he increased his, his vote share among the Latino population. We have President Trump getting roughly 28%, 27, 28% of the Latino vote in 2020. So most folks want to know what explains that. I think there was an expectation that Latinos would have even lower support than 18% in 2020. And obviously that did not happen. So there's a lot of questions about what led to his increased 
uh, support among Latino voters? And is that something that the Republican Party can bank on moving forward? There are lots of potential explanations for his gains. That's the multi-million dollar question. I'll say of, of all the, the calls I've gotten from reporters, probably 75% have asked this question of what explains that increase in, in President Trump's support among Latinos. And before I get into some of the nuances, again, just want to remind folks that we're really talking about a 9 or 10% increase. So it's not huge, right? Still overwhelmingly, Biden carried the Latino electorate. We have him probably 70% support among Latinos. Uh, but it is interesting, um, especially when a lot of folks thought, given you know that the racialization of, of Latino voters in 2016 and a lot of policies that might not be friendly to the Latino population, to see an increase, I think, generates a lot of interest. Uh, when we look at the data, and a lot of this is, is just me looking at our crosstabs from our big election eve poll in 2016 and comparing them uh, to what we saw now in 2020, uh, one of the things that is, is pretty obvious when you stare at the data is although Latinos were still more likely to support the Democratic candidate in 2020 than they were in 2016, that gender gap was nowhere near as large as it was in, in 2016. Latinas came down a bit from their record high 86% support for Hillary Clinton in 2016, came down a little bit more to normal ranges of, of mid to high 70s. And so I think that's one explanation just when you look at the demographics. Uh, but probably more important than that is when you look at state by state level differences. Uh, Florida, uh, for example, our data suggests increased uh, their support for President Trump from 31% back in, in 2016 to 38% uh, now in 2020. Uh, similarly, we saw shifts in, in Texas, a jump from a really, really known number of, of 16% in 2016 up to 29% in 2020. And I think you, you hit the nail on the head when we look internally at a state like Texas, although Biden did incredibly well and probably increased his vote share relative to Clinton in, in key cities, Houston, Dallas, San Antonio. Once you get into the Rio Grande Valley, we saw a combination of lower turnout then I think the Democrats were hoping for or expected in the Rio Grande Valley area of the state of Texas and also a bit higher support for Trump than a lot of models uh, predicted. So I think there's a lot there to dig into. I think one of the things that a lot of people haven't spoken a lot about is the difference in response to the economic challenges associated with the coronavirus between the two candidates um, with a really clear distinction of President Trump basically arguing we've got to keep businesses open. We can't shut things down. And I think a lot of people forget that Latinos are disproportionately small business owners. In fact, those entrepreneurs have absolutely kept that small business orientation in the United States afloat over the last 10 years, with just higher increases in small business owners among Latinos than any other racial and ethnic group. So I think for a lot of those folks, they might not have agreed with President Trump's platform on a number of issues. They probably didn't like him personally, but they were forced with a really difficult proposition. Right. If we can't open up businesses, my business might go under. A lot of Latino businesses already have gone under. So I think that might have been one factor that moved a bit more Latinos to to candidate Trump in 2020 than we saw in 2016. The decline in immigration discussion probably helped Trump with Latinos. I think that was one of the biggest factors. I mean, unlike 2016, where all of the discussion by talking heads like myself, the media about the presidential election and Latino voters, generally started with and ended with immigration policy, right? And we saw everything from separation of families uh, to huge border enforcement, building of the wall, all those chants at, at President Trump's campaign rallies about building the wall. All of that narrative just wasn't there in 2020. 
And I think it really wasn't a strategic decision by the Trump campaign to move off of immigration. I think it was just the coronavirus sucked all the air out of other issues. And for the Latino population who had been devastated by, by the virus, disproportionately so across every single state in the U.S. where we have the availability to look at data, Latinos are overrepresented in positive cases and unfortunately in casualties. I think all attention was just there and it allowed a window for, for President Trump to be able to talk about other issues and move away from immigration, which was clearly uh, something that really impacted his, his prospects for the Latino vote. So I think that was something that really helped candidate Trump with Latino voters. But again, we're talking about only an increase of, you know, nine, 10 percent at most relative to 2016. Immigration declined as the most important issue, along with attention to Trump's rhetoric. Part of it is, and then you look at the data and, you, you know, every one of our Latino decision surveys, uh, especially in the context of elections, always asks directly in an open ended way, what are the most important issues facing the Latino community that you think the, the federal government and elected leaders should address? When you look at that data, although the coronavirus was the top issue for Latino voters, I think 67 percent or so, healthcare costs and the economy and jobs were higher than immigration for particular subgroups of the Latino electorate, including immigrants themselves, immigration remained a top two or top three issue. So I don't want to say that immigration took a major backseat, especially for foreign born Latino voters, but it just wasn't quite as salient, largely because you just didn't have the everyday rhetoric from uh, President Trump hammering on Mexican immigrants, hammering on border enforcement. And without that constant reminder, I think Latinos, like every other population, became more concerned with the coronavirus and what that might mean for them in terms of their health and the health of their families, as well as just the overall economy. Uh, so I think that's really the story. It's just a, a nuance to how important immigration policy was uh, for the Latino population. But one really interesting uh, point there is in the top five for most Latino voters, much more so for young Latino voters, discrimination and social justice issues became mobilizers, particularly for young Latinos. And a huge segment of the Latino population, when we asked them directly if things in terms of racism towards Latinos have gotten worse in the last four years, overwhelmingly, 62% of Latinos believe that their community has faced more discrimination than they did four years ago. So I think Latinos are conscious of what's going on. They're conscious of police violence and brutality against their community, structural racism. All of these factors definitely help mobilize Latinos. It's just that the coronavirus was such a huge force in 2020, particularly for Latinos, that essentially crowded out or drowned out a lot of these other factors, including immigration. But Sanchez says Democrats have still made gains among Latinos since George W. Bush. If we take a look at the last several election cycles, right, and you, you go back to 2008 and you start to look at the Latino voting patterns over time, you know, essentially between 70, 75 percent of Latinos across the last several election cycles have voted Democratic. Right. So although right now when we're talking about probably 70 percent for Biden, that might not look as high as it did in the Obama years, it still suggests that, you know, probably 72 percent on average of Latinos have voted Democratic over the last several election cycles. So I think that's probably the new norm, if you will, for Latino vote is, is being north of 70 percent, which is a, a huge number, especially when we think about the Bush years. Right? Some estimates had candidate Bush getting as much as 40 percent of Latino vote. So even in a relatively high year, right, we're still for, for candidate Trump not talking about anywhere near the 40 percent range that Bush got. And I think it's just important to remind folks of that relatively recent 
history just so we get a sense of, of what things look like. Um, so I think, you know, if we compare what were those Bush voters and what drove them to the polls and to support candidate Bush, a lot of it was more, you know, quote unquote, moral issues back back in that era where the, the really the take home message for Latino voters is that they might be morally conservative. And there we're talking about primarily abortion, but in terms of other domestic policy issues, much more liberal. And so that was really the conversation about the Latino vote back in the Bush years. Now, I think it's it's shifted from that. I think candidate Trump definitely did win some votes by pushing hard on abortion, particularly in the context of, of the Supreme Court nomination and all of that discussion. But I think much more so than that, it was really just potentially a lot of Latino Republicans who might have been really turned off by Trump in 2016 and his racialized campaign, essentially coming back home to the Republican Party, you know, after four years and maybe, uh, you know, moving back to more of a normal, you know, 70, 30 percent range of distribution of Latino vote. I think that's probably going to be the outcome after we get through crunching all the numbers of the 2020 campaign is just kind of taking a look maybe at 2016 being an outlier where we saw just record lows of support from Latinos to the Republican Party and maybe just getting back to more of a 70, 30 split. I think that's probably going to be the take home message. In 2020, we saw big differences across states and national origin groups. Castro finds that Latino party identification often stems from country of origin politics. In this paper, I find the, the importance of the experience occurring in the countries of origin for the political behavior of Latin American immigrants in the United States. I find that people who came from countries with governments on the right wing are usually Democrats, and that those migrants who come from countries with government of the left wing, they tend to align themselves with the Republican Party. He started by noticing some big differences across Latino subgroups. This research starts because I'm a product of Puerto Rico, a Latin American and Caribbean country subject to the common power of the United States. My experience in Latin America preceded my arrival to their states. Before starting my graduate studies in the United States, I have had the opportunity to visit several Latin American countries. And I have realized that Latin Americans are very different from each other. Yes, we have a common language and a similar story, but many times our similarities end up there. Upon arriving to the United States and beginning to become familiar with American political science, I realized that here, both academia and society treat Latinos as the same thing. And it is why I propose that we are not the same, that we have our differences and that this difference makes us to have a different political behavior. His work generalizes the Cuban case. We know those Latinos are more on the right due to their immigration story. The Cuban experience is key for my article on to explain of that in Cuba, after the revolution, there is a migratory phenomenon to the United States that is very different from the migration from Latin Americans on other countries. While immigrants from the rest of Latin America arrive fleeing the poverty of their countries from Cuba, Kima reached a dominant class allied to a dictatorship of Fulgencio Batista and that lost their economic and political power after the Cuban Revolution in 1959. Upon reaching the United States, those Cubans find that the party that most strongly defends 
the individualism on which the rich class in Cuba before the revolution depended. And they also find that this party was the Republican Party, the one who strongly opposed to communism in the world. And it was the Republican Party who has no problem in inviting countries and violating international law to self to repress the self-determination of the Latin American countries. And it is all of this that leads Cuban to align themselves with the Republican Party. And it is not just a phenomenon of the Cubans in the United States, just to give that example. Many Cubans also came to other Latin American countries. And in Puerto Rico, after the Cuban Revolution, many Cubans migrated to Puerto Rico and committed terrorist attacks to assassinate Puerto Ricans who defended the independence of Puerto Rico or Puerto Ricans who be in favor of the Cuban Revolution or Puerto Ricans who are against the colonial power of the United States in Puerto Rico. Puerto Ricans initially escaped the right, but the latest migrants are different. Puerto Rico as a colony has had right-wing or extreme right-wing governors in both an economic and political sense. Rico, despite having a society that could be classified as conservative, the migration of Puerto to their state is not like the Cuban Republican that in migration in which privileged people who belong to the power circles of the Burgos in the Fulgencia dictatorship. No, Puerto who migrate to the United States do so mainly because of poverty and lack of jobs and opportunities in Puerto Rico, and all of it is within a right government contest. Once these Puerto Ricans arrive to the United States, they may be conservative people or at least conservative people in a Latin American context, but they often reject conservative policies of the Republican Party in their states. And I argue that this is worse even more now with the anti-Latino speeches of Donald Trump. It's also important when each group came, and future Mexican immigrants may be less democratic. Mexico, as well as in countries as Colombia, is an interesting case, because these are countries which have been ruled exclusively by right-wing presidents. And there are ideological differences between those presidents. Some right-wing presidents are more conservative than other right-wing presidents but they are still on the right wing. Therefore, I really don't think that people who left Mexico under Fox or under Calderon might have different preferences than those under Peña Nieto. Although it would be interesting to see in, if in the future it, there is a change in the partisan preferences of Mexicans who came to the United States during the president of Andres Manuel López Obrador, who is more to the left. Trump went after specific groups with specific messages, including foreign policy and economics. I'm going to say something that is not new nor a phenomenon of this election, but we see candidates in this last election targeting their audiences. The campaigns targeted to Latinos were very specific to each group in this last election. For example, in Florida, the Donald Trump campaign went at, in Spanish, with a Puerto Rican accent to Puerto Ricans, and in Spanish, with a Cuban accent for Cubans. But 
it was not the only differences. The message within it were different for both populations. For example, the message targeted to the Cubans were talking about policies against Cuba, but the messages targeted to Puerto Ricans were talking about how the U.S. administration will help Puerto Rico to the hurricane recovery. With the increasing migration of Puerto Ricans to Florida, the state of Florida has become a challenge for campaigns. Looking at the results in Florida, 59 of all Latino voters were to Joe Biden. However, this number leaves us more questions than answers. The two biggest Latino populations in Florida are the Cubans, mainly in Miami, and the Puerto Ricans, mainly in Orlando and Kissimmee. Historically, both populations have had an electoral and political behaviors very different. While Cubans in Florida have been Republican supporters, this trend has been declining in recent years. Unlike the Cubans who began to migrate in large numbers after the Cuban Revolution, the Puerto Rican migration is very recent, at least to Florida. And very little is known about them. Puerto have been studied in states like New York, like Pennsylvania. But I think it is an error to assume that just because Puerto Ricans are strong Democratic supporters in New York and the East Coast of the United States in general, it is applicable to Puerto Ricans in Florida. And the reason, because I think we cannot apply political preference from Puerto Ricans in other states to analyze those from Florida, is because the recent migration of Puerto Ricans to Florida has a context very different from the circumstances for Puerto Ricans who migrated several ago to New York. Castro says Trump improved his standing by changing his message and issues. Trump's numbers among Latinos are the fruit of a great mobilization effort by the Trump campaign team. After Trump's racist comments towards Mexican Latino immigrants, the fact that there are still Latinos who support Trump is an achievement. I think it may be because two reasons. First, because those Latinos who support Trump are giving an economic vote or a U.S. national vote, not necessarily, not necessarily a Latino vote. So that is when comes the concept of Latino link faith applied to Latinos. One thing is that a person is a Latino, again, but link faith is determinant on the sentiment of how you think that you become to a Latino community. And the second, and it is the one that most applies my research, is that when Trump attacks Latinos, sometimes are not to Latinos in general, sometimes they attack Central American, sometimes they attack specifically Mexican, sometimes they attack Puerto Ricans. But by example, Latino, uh, Trump doesn't attack Cubans. And there is a big difference. I think the Trump analysis is not to Latinos in general, but it's a targeted attack. Sanchez agrees there are a lot of national origin differences across the Latino electorate, with the socialism message mattering more for some than others. 
one thing that has clearly emerged and has been an important, I think, collective understanding now about the Latino electorate is just how diverse and non-monolithic that voting population is. I mean, obviously, those of us that, that study the Latino electorate have been saying this for decades, but I think now the mainstream media has really caught on to that and has understood, you know, when you're talking about the Latino vote, you got to talk about it within the nuances of national origin and where folks live across the country. You know, so if we're talking about did, you know, I would argue a lot of misinformation campaigns that were trying to paint the Biden team as heavily socialist and, and particularly the Democratic Party as heavily socialist. I think where that had the most traction is in the state of Florida, where you've got the Cuban-American population and the Venezuelan subgroups being larger in number than in a lot of other states, and where that socialism argument or, or debate, if you will, becomes much more central and much more powerful. And so if you look at, for example, a subgroup analysis within the state of Florida, not too surprisingly, uh, Cuban-Americans and Venezuelans were more likely to support candidate Trump. And I think some of that you know, how much is, is hard to say just now, but at least some of that I think is, is attributed to this underlying notion of socialism and maybe some of the characterization of what that means in the United States being carried over from their countries of origin. Some may have been attracted, and Biden did win over Sanders' Latino supporters, young people who didn't move to Trump. That was an important narrative, right, coming off of the primary where you saw, you know, Bernie Sanders carry a larger segment of the Latino vote across the country than Biden did, one of the big questions is, could those folks that were pretty hardcore Sanders supporters be moved towards Biden? How many of those folks would just sit out the election, et cetera? Would that cost Biden the prospect of a victory? And when you looked at the data from the primary, it was pretty clear that the vast majority of Latino Bernie Sanders supporters were young Latinos. And so there was a lot of question about what could be done to move them over, et cetera. And at least initially, when you look at turnout, by young Latinos, right? It looks as though the Biden campaign was actually able to capture a larger segment of that population than was projected. And that's an important factor, especially when we think about just underlying demographics. This is somewhat surprising to people. Over 40% of Latino eligible voters in this cycle were under the age of 35, nearly 60% under 45, right? So if you think about that challenge for Team Biden, how do we engage a lot of these young voters, not only just to vote, because we know well, right, turning out young voters is a challenge every single election cycle, but how do you move them uh, from Sanders' camp over to Biden? And I think, you know, we wouldn't be able to be talking about a Biden victory, particularly in states like Arizona, if they weren't able to capture some of that enthusiasm that was originally situated with Sanders and moved over to Biden. Um, so I think that is really, if you look at the underlying demographic patterns, it was really about young Latino voters. And I think the Biden team did enough among that subgroup to be able to carry some of these key states. There were other big changes this year. Sanchez says Latino turnout was way up. Turnout's always the thing that takes us scholars and, and analysts a little bit longer to have firm data on just because you have to confirm so much information across states. Uh, but at least the early estimates and I'm using UCLA's Latino Politics and Policy Initiatives analysis, they, they suggest that there was probably 14.8 million Latinos who turned out in, in 2020, which is a big number, right? I think we, we can firmly say that more Latinos voted in 2020 than any election before that. And especially when we start to look at individual states, even states where you don't typically associate a lot of Latinos, like let's say Wisconsin, 135,000 Latino votes were cast is our estimate there. Michigan, over 100,000. You know, you look at more traditional states like Arizona and Colorado, 700,000 
Latino voters in Arizona, probably 300,000 or so in Colorado. So despite heavy, heavy concerns among the Latino electorate about the fear of, of voting, particularly in person, because Latinos have been disproportionately impacted by the coronavirus, despite a bunch of misinformation and voter suppression efforts, despite all of those obstacles, you know, Latinos really turned out in, in extremely high numbers, um, especially if we think about, you know, somewhere between 1.5 and 2 million Latinos voting early, right? All of those numbers suggest that it was a really big turnout year for Latinos in 2020. Latinos were more mobilized this time, but still lag behind other groups in mobilization. On the positive, I would say the amount of outreach and mobilization efforts directed towards Latinos were probably record-breaking in 2020. Any way you look at it, you know, in terms of our surveys, the amount of likely voters who indicate that they were contacted, you look at the amount of money spent and invested in the Latino population, all of those things I think are very positive, especially in states like Arizona, where you saw a huge increase in, in Latino turnout. That was, you know, folks on the ground working over the last two election cycles, really, really trying to figure out how to mobilize Latinos. So there's a lot of positive stories there, particularly among organizations on the ground that did a lot of tremendous work in 2020. But at the end of the day, if you look at our election eve survey and you just look at self-reported contact, and that's contact by either party, right? Any of the candidates, Latinos are still disproportionately unmobilized. So I think at the end of the day, absolutely, there's some truth to that discussion that Latinos just were not contacted, were not mobilized, were not engaged to the same extent as other racial and ethnic groups. And it continues to be a chicken or egg phenomenon, right? Some folks are going to say we won't pump in huge money, let's say into Texas and the Rio Grande Valley until we see that that's going to be worth our investment. Uh, because those are obviously finite resources and money you pump into Texas means you don't have money, let's say, for Wisconsin or Michigan right, or Nevada. So I think there's definitely, you know, a little bit of a mixed bag. I think we'll look back on 2020 and say, hey, Latinos turned out. And in many cases, despite huge fears of risking their life to get infected with the virus and turned out at really, really high numbers. But there's still a lot of room to, to really improve on Latino turnout moving forward. And I think we're learning quite a bit better about how to do that effectively, what areas in the country we need to be much more investing earlier in the campaign season. I mean, that's one thing I've heard consistently from a lot of organizations on the ground is they're saying essentially, look, we didn't see Team Biden's folks until really close to election day. Why don't they start earlier? Why don't they start their ground games earlier? I think that's going to be one thing that hopefully we see improving in the future. In 2020, Latinos were focused on the economy and COVID, and that changed how they voted. Well, like for all voters, you know, Latinos were a population-driven mostly by the coronavirus and the perception of, of which candidate was going to be better at attacking the virus, both in terms of the economic relief, as well as obviously the health, um, direct health implications of that. So that was the number one issue for Latino voters. And that's what we're spending a lot of our time um, looking at in, in terms of how did that shape, not only how Latinos thought about the candidates, but also how they participated in the election. Um, like all voters, there was a record number of Latinos who either voted early or voted by mail. And a lot of that, our data suggests, was because they wanted to avoid uh, standing in long lines and potentially catching the virus by voting on election day. So I think studying how behavior shifted during the pandemic, how it influenced uh, the Latino electorate, and really whether states will continue opening up access to early voting and mail voting moving forward when we're out of the pandemic, context? Will that influence how Latinos in many states 
access the ballot box and, and how they pay attention to politics, et cetera. So one big thing that I think a lot of us are, are taking a look at and paying close attention to. He finds no large differences based on education, despite claims of a working class move. But there were big differences by voting method. I haven't seen huge, huge gaping differences based on educational attainment among Latinos like you see among the overall white population. So at least, you know, preliminarily speaking, I don't think there's a, a big story there about underlying differences among Latinos. And if we're thinking about maybe some other differences across the, the subgroup that, that maybe we want to pay closer attention to and, and figure out if these are going to be trends moving into the future. You know, one thing we, we might take a closer look at is how people intended to vote. Right. And in 2020, this was much more powerful than in other election cycles. But, you know, given the huge number of Latinos who voted early and voted by mail, we saw a pattern, at least in our pre-election surveys, where mail-based voters among Latinos were much more likely uh, to indicate that they were going to vote for Biden. And I think that's part of the story of why the late votes that were coming in across the country were trending so heavily towards Biden. I think there was a lot of enthusiasm for him among folks who intended to vote by mail. But unfortunately, a large segment, particularly of young Latinos, didn't trust mail ballots. They didn't think that their vote would actually be counted. There was a lot of fear about fraud. Obviously, a lot of that being pumped out by, by President Trump himself and his team. But I think as we think about the future, as all of us start to dig in closer in the data and we start to figure out among Latino subgroups who's most likely to vote early moving forward, who's most likely to potentially vote by mail, and who does that benefit? I think you're going to see a lot more targeted, um, effective mobilization trying to capture people that intend to vote early, much earlier in the campaign season, recognizing if you wait until a week or two before, you might have a large segment of folks that have already cast their ballot and it'll be too late to move them. Latino Decisions has higher Democratic numbers for Latinos, but Sanchez says their numbers are converging with others. When we compare our numbers to the exit poll or to other major national polls, they were actually a lot closer now in, in 2020 than they were back in 2016. Uh, for folks who might not follow this closely, after 2016, our team really was pretty aggressive in critiquing the exit poll numbers, uh, particularly for Latinos, largely because the exit poll really is not designed to capture nuances across racial and ethnic groups. Um, so if you look at, for example, in 2016, we put out a lot of briefs that really challenged who the exit poll was talking to among Latinos, maybe completely ignoring the whole Rio Grande Valley in the state of Texas, et cetera. But this time around, if you look closely, the exit polls actually changed their numbers a few times as they got closer to the final estimates that they put out. And every time they did, their numbers looked a lot more like ours in 2020. So I think there's a lot more movement and sophistication across the wider population of pollsters and researchers. And we like to think we played a heavy hand in hopefully improving the way that folks think about the Latino population we're trying to track them in, in polling. So here's a few things that we do that we think leads to the credibility of our numbers for Latinos. One is we have fully bilingual interviewers. So if we're interviewing folks on the phone, we make sure that if we pick up the phone with you and you wanna do the interview in Spanish, you can do it right then and there. No callbacks like a lot of other firms use if they don't have fully a bilingual interviewer staff. And if you take a look at our polls, you know, for the election eve, for example, we had over 30% of the overall sample take the, the interview in Spanish. And if you compare that with some other uh, pollsters out there, in many cases, they have zero Spanish language interviews. So that always, to me, is pretty telling of just the underlying difference of who we're talking to. And consistently, these days, when we take a sample, 
we're always blending in text message recruitment, doing a lot of interviews online, not relying extensively on the phones. Uh, these days, particularly for Latinos, because so much of our voting eligible population are young under the age of 30, you got to catch these people where they are. And for us, that means increasing the number of, of interviews that we do right off of particularly landlines, but even cell phones. So that's another thing that I would always tell people, take a look at the, the data and method sections of polls and get a sense of who they're talking to. And then the other thing that I find that is different for us than a lot of other firms, and this is challenging for pollsters, uh, because we're always trying to talk to the most highly likely voters we can. And typically what people do is take a look at past voting records, if we can connect um, what we're looking at in terms of sample to the voting record. And we want to catch people that, let's say, voted in 2018, voted in 2016, right? Because they're highly likely voters. But for Latinos, given how young that demographic is, we've got to make sure that we're catching people who are telling us they're enthusiastic, they're engaged, they plan to vote, but simply weren't old enough to vote in those last election cycles. So I tend to find that we let in more of those folks into our samples and a lot of our competition. Um, you put all of that together, and I think at the end of the day, we, we by far have the most trusted estimates uh, for the Latino population when you look at us in our competition. Castro also finds that language use matters, along with linked fate across Latino groups. Linked fate is important for Latinos, I think. One thing is that a person is Latino. A person cannot change that. If you are Latino, you will continue being Latino. But a person can have a sentiment of linked fate to other Latinos. And it is something that I find in my paper to be important, that a sentiment of linked fate to other Latinos is a strong determinant of democratic self-identification. About language, the reason because I think it is important is because it's a good indicator of assimilation. And a low level of assimilation shows that a person is more aligned with the Democratic Party. So it's not just the language. So Spanish doesn't have anything that moves you to the Democratic Party. What means the Spanish language is the level of assimilation. That's important. He says many Latinos may stay in the Democratic Party due to social constraints, even if they lean toward conservatism. I think the polarizing effect is more important than the electoral effect in this case. Latinos in the United States have historically been Democrats, with the exception of Cubans. Therefore, how much does the opinion of a group that historically have not supported you at the electoral level matter to the Republican Party? I think not really much. Regardless of whether a Latino vote Democratic because he considers it a better option or if he decides to vote for the Democratic Party because he hates Donald Trump, both votes has the same value. It's still a single vote. So recently, Ismail White and Trailer published a book named Still Fat Democrats. And they argue that there is a black racialized social constraint that push blacks to engage in political action to support the Democratic Party. They conclude that blacks are generally constrained by the presence of other blacks to over-report their loyalty to the Democratic Party by over-reporting turnout, voting, uh, support to the Democratic Party, and to the Democratic candidate and several other electoral participation activities. And I think that something similar happened in, with Latinos. 
I think Latinos are socially constrained not to show any kind of support to Donald Trump because there is a social cost to Latinos to recognize they support Donald Trump. But one thing is what they publicly recognize and other thing is how they vote. But there are openings for Republicans. Each Latino nationality group has different issue interests to be targeted. The first thing to be to not treat first-generation Latinos as if they were equal. I think they are starting to do that. Campaigns to be targeted not to Latinos, but to Mexicans specifically, to Cubans, to Puerto Ricans, to Venezuelans. And why? It is because those have different matters. For example, the immigration policies might be of interest for Mexicans and Central Americans, but not for Puerto Ricans because the United States imposed the American citizenship to Puerto Ricans more than one century ago. So Puerto Ricans doesn't have any problem of illegal immigration here. For example, both Mexicans and Puerto Ricans are not interested in the Cuban blockade and the economic implications. It is not a problem that matters for them. Mexicans are not interested in when the U.S. will invade Venezuela. That doesn't matter with Mexico. So I think in this scenario, the campaign strategies need to be targeted to specific subpopulations of Latinos. The U.S. parties are usually considered on the right in Latin American politics, but those perceptions might be shaped by policies and socialist messages. It is important first to emphasize that the left-right spectrum is not the same in the United States as in the rest of Latin America. Well, in the U.S., some people might even consider the Democratic Party as a liberal or even a center-left party. In Latin America, the whole American politics, including the Democratic Party, is perceived as conservative. Now, that doesn't mean that the discourse of fear of socialism does not continue to be significant even though in recent years, the percentage of people, including Latinos, who are not afraid of socialism has decreased, regardless of where they support it. We cannot forget that the Cold War was not just a conflict between the US and the Soviet Union, but had planetary implications. It is important to keep in mind that the United States has ever considered Latin America as a backyard and has always fought with the prerogative to impose and to implement policies, invasion, coups, presidents in Latin America. And the Cold War period as a historical period was not the exception. During the Cold War, the United States was in charge of eradicating socialism or anything that seemed to socialism by all possible means, including by invasions, imposing precedents in Latin America. A good example is the Condor Plan, in which the United States imposed right-wing dictatorship in South American countries as Chile, Argentina, Paraguay, Uruguay. The reason because it is important to understand of how Latinos have a possible fear of socialism in United States is that in Latin America, the fear of becoming Cuba or Venezuela has been cultivated. And 
This is reflected in clear to any progressive idea that will be perceived as left-wing and aimed to turning your country into Cuba and Venezuela, which are commonly used as examples of bad and undesirable countries to live. All of this is reflected in both in Latin Americans, in their respective countries, and Latin Americans who are currently in the United States. So where do we go from here? Castro will be looking at urban-rural differences that might be due to socialization in democratic cities. I think that it is important to recognize that many Latino populations in the United States are in historically democratic cities in historically democratic states. For example, there is a big population of Latinos, mainly from Mexican origin in California, and there is a big population of Puerto Ricans in New York. The U.S. socialization that Mexicans in California have and the U.S. socialization that Puerto Ricans in New York have is a U.S. socialization that leans to the democratic party. So under these circumstances, it is understandable that they are usually Democrats. So that's why I argue, by example, that we cannot apply this knowledge to the understanding of Puerto Ricans in Florida. We need to study the Puerto Ricans in Florida as a new phenomenon that we need to recognize that we do know and that we need to research on that. And Sanchez says police brutality was also a major issue this year, and he sees some potential for a cross-racial minority coalition for reform. One thing that wasn't really discussed much this campaign season is how much police brutality police reform, police violence, all of that conversation about structural racism that we saw really ignite major protests across the country. How much did that translate to the Latino population? Did it have any effect on actual mobilization of Latinos to turn out in the polls? And one thing, I think I put a piece out on Brookings about this, particularly for the young Latino electorate. We actually saw that be a pretty dominant issue and a mobilizing factor for a lot of Latinos. And our data suggests a lot of that is because Latinos at the end of the day face a lot of the same pressures with police violence and excessive force that the African-American community does. And I think once Latinos started to see that widespread movement, I think that's something we're going to pay close attention to moving forward. Will that energy and enthusiasm, particularly among Latinos under 30, translate into a longer movement, a longer push at the state level to really accomplish police reform? And how much pressure will there be on, on the Biden team and administration as they take over to do something about some of these issues that Latinos and African-Americans in particular, two key subgroups that were vital to, to the Biden victory, how much will they be able to deliver on some of these policy issues that clearly mobilized at least a large segment of young Latinos? There's a lot more to learn. The Science of Politics is available bi-weekly from the Niskanen Center. I'm your host, Matt Grossman. Thanks to Gabriel Sanchez and Giovanni Castro for joining me. Please check out Latinos in the 2016 Election and The Influence of Country of Origin in the Process of Party Identification Acquisition, and then listen in next time. 